Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, April the 14th, 2023, uh, end of another week. Writers love to reward each other. They like to give each other prizes. Some of the prizes are bigger deal than the other. Um, but of course, it's significant when they give themselves major prizes. Uh, one of the, the leading literary prizes in the world is the Rathbones Folio Prize. It's the kind of Booker Prize for writers in the sense that writers award themselves the Rathbones Folio Prize. So it means that um, writers actually think highly of their fellow writers. Many of the world's leading uh, writers have, have won the award, including Margaret Atwood, Peter Carey, A.S. Byatt, Zadie Smith, and J.M. Coetzee. And I'm thrilled and honored that the winner of the nonfiction Rathbones Folio Prize for 2023, Margot Jefferson, whose uh, book Constructing a Nervous System has just come out in paperback, uh, has just been awarded the prize. And even more excitingly, she's joining us from her home in the West Village in New York City. Margot, I'm guessing, uh, we've never spoken before, I'm guessing that you treat prizes with, shall we say, a pinch of salt. Were you amused by this prize? I mean, obviously, uh, you're not going to deny that you were happy, but I'm guessing that you were as much amused as happy by this prize? I don't know. You know, amusement can be very joyful. So I would say um, I was, um, amusement would, uh, would mean that I felt very lucky and surprised. And I know there's a certain uh, randomness to, to one's share of prizes in the world, um, even of nominations. Um, I was tickled though. I was very tickled. Tickled is, a, tickled is a Margot Jefferson word, isn't it? I, I suppose it is, yes. Um, a word Amused, I also... I mean, that's my, that's my word for amusement. All right, um, then, we're, then we are as one, yes. Uh, you, you write uh, both in this book and in Negro Land, very much in uh, the context of your family and the world you grew up in. I, I wonder what your parents would make of of this prize would they do you think they were in a sense were you being brought up to be gracious when you won all these awards um i'll two things i was brought up to be um to it, to work hard and excel enough so that i could be qualified for these awards even if i didn't get them so i think that's the that's the that's the key thing um i was brought up uh, partly because of this um, this world I grew up in, this um, black upper middle class world that had a great deal of savvy about um, about how the world worked. I was brought up not to expect that such prizes would be the markers, the, the you know the brand names um, for your achievement, but to you know, keep working on one's own. Would they be pleased and proud? 
Absolutely. Would they love everything that I wrote in those books? No. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's always very complicated. Less the critical parts of it than the autobiographical, because you're always implicating, um, even when it comes entirely out of love and affection, you're always implicating and in a way presuming um, in memoir on, um, on your intimacies, on your, on your family, on your friends, on your lovers. Margot, the book's just come out in paperback, got great reviews, um, deservedly so. I thought it was a wonderful book. The, the Post uh, described uh, the memoir as your life refracted through art. And in the review, they have this image of Willa Cather, who you write about in the book. Um, I, I'm curious, do you take that personally, the idea of life being refracted through art? Because one then thinks, well... Without art, what's your life? One does think that. Um, what I was really after here was the various ways um, with art dominating that, um, that a life is revealed, is refracted through whatever, through whatever kinds of circumstances, forms, etc. Um, a life can be refracted through factual history. Why a life... I don't know what my life would be without art. I frankly can't imagine that. Um, not only because it was such so much a source of play and, and pleasure and, um, as you say, amusement as well as you know, intense emotion all the time that I was growing up, but because I chose when I became an adult to, um, to write about, to immerse myself in, um, in the arts. So... You know, it's 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 crucial to me. It is at this point um, a part a part of my identity, and it is is not every piece of art, but it is as intimate. My relations with the works of art that matter most to me are as intimate in their way as my relations to um, my family were, my friends, lovers, all of that. So, yeah. You mentioned lovers. One of the most memorable uh, sections of the book in a very memorable book, uh, <laughs> Constructing a Nervous System, deals with a lover. You don't worry about all your lovers. This, and, and excuse me if I use this term incorrectly, this somewhat gangsterish fellow um, who you clearly were very attached to and amused by, but at the same time disturbed by, eventually you moved away from him. Do you struggle to write about your life if it isn't associated with art and creativity and intellect? Well, I would say that uh, by the sheer fact of my having been you know, an art writer um, for so many years, when I came to write, for example, Negro Land, which was the, the first memoir I wrote, but it continued here, it was a real shock for me. And it was... Um, it was very difficult, and I, I wasn't able to do to do it by more than fits and starts until I I stumbled upon the fact that I could simply say out loud, um, "Memoir is unsettling to me." I was brought up to be very, very cautious and protective of your life, to try to present yourself as um, unimpeachable in certain ways, impenetrable. This is, this is difficult. How am I going to do this? Uh, and finding 
you know, those relationships between resisting, um, keeping, at a, keeping at a distance and ways to tell the story, um, different ways. That, that was fascinating, but I, it was very hard. It is very hard. How do you find the, the right tones? It's so right. easy to be, um, you know, um, oh, my goodness, poor me. It's also very easy to be rather grandiose. Um, you know, all those protective devices that we use in everyday life, you have to show that they're devices if, if, you're, if you're drawing on them in a book and you have to find other kinds of, of truth. You seem to be particularly attracted by other impenetrable people, particularly women. You write about uh, quite extensively Josephine Baker in the show. Uh, sorry, in the book. We had a... We did a show <laughs> I see what you said, show, yes. Uh, yeah, whoops. Uh, that was a Freudian one, right? Uh, Damien Lewis came on the show. He has a wonderful new book out, Agent Josephine, American yes. Beauty, French Hero, British Spy. It's about her her spying during the war, her bravery, he talked about a profound sense of duty. What is it about Baker and her Im impenetrability that attracted you so much? And do you think that the people who somehow have this sense of duty, do you think they have to be impenetrable? Certainly they have to in war. So, yes, and that, yes, exactly. Um, but I would say one, we so often look when we are, encountering people or analyzing them, even when they're characters in, um, in fiction. We so often look for what we think of as, you know, the resounding, the great truth, the, the vulnerability that, that finally um, reveals itself as at the core of this person. Um, and there are people who do not give you that. They also, and this is so true of performers, um, and God knows that brave and valiant um, war work was also a performance, a life and death one. Um, performers are creatures, and Baker certainly was with her languages, her lives, her moving from dance to music, um, and you know the lovers, the wardrobes. Um, she was living multiple lives, um, and that in some way means you you have to take in the entire spectacle, and there isn't one um, fixed, absolutely resonant, um, bottom line truth. Um, that she kept, she kept for herself, um, whatever it was. And maybe she didn't see herself that way. Maybe she saw herself as this you know, kind of cornucopia of experiences and challenges. And she was always looking for some way to, to to succeed, to make an experience, um, you know, a triumph, um, a glory. And she worked ceaselessly, not just at the serious war work, but as a performer. Yeah, your one's life, and I don't need to tell you this, Margot, is, is a form of art. Um, I wonder if when the biography of Margot Jefferson gets written, it will be called Agent Margot. <laughs> An agent across... Um, class and racial and gender lines. Is that what you're thinking? You're spying on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's a good yeah. way of thinking of it, actually. Yeah. Do, yes, do you actually, sometimes think is. of yourself as an agent? I do. Um, sort of looking at other people's, other colors, other genders, other Certain, classes? Certainly as um, a canny, a, working to be canny, which an agent certainly is, um, observer somewhere but you can be I can be a spectator sometimes a voyeur 
Um, but whenever a circumstance, a situation, a world um, uh, opens itself out to me or invites me in or tries to prohibit, I am there to, I am trying to analyze what are all the elements. I'm trying to document and report on this world and what it thinks it should expect of me, what it expects of me, what I want to offer or deny it. So yeah, I'm always sussing out the territory, which doesn't mean I'm not you know, also participating fully. Uh, that's well, that's what a good agent does. And of course, the best agents don't sweat. They are. Oh, that's so. F oh, OK. And uh, here we're going with with you. With another great scene in the book is Margot at the gym um, being uh, propositioned by different men, being very cool. You write about. Well, sweating. but also negotiating my own um, worries about hmm, how old do they think I am? Right. Well, you, and, and you, you seem to have. You, you seem to enjoy the fact that people always underestimated how old you are. You you work on yourself. You work on your you work on your writing. You work on your body. In contrast, in the book, you write about Ella Fitzgerald, one of the most iconic figures of twentieth century uh, music, and, and in America. Uh, and you and you write about her sweating. What is it about Fitzgerald and sweat that's so interesting? From the perspective of Agent Margot. Well, this is Agent Margot in the 1950s and early 60s when um, codes of appearance, of behavior, of um, how much of the body was and its functions were, was acknowledged and how much had to be politely turned away from. Uh, those codes for women in particular were relentless, uh, particularly, even more particularly, if you were a performer. So, the, you know, the fascinating thing about Ella Fitzgerald, one of the fascinating things, at a time when I was listening to her totally in taking in my parents' um, very sophisticated awareness of how good she was, um, but I was obsessed. I was 10, 11, 12 with um, perfect images of female beauty. Um, which if they were black female beauty and there weren't nearly as many of those circulating in uh, mass culture, you, it had to be um, a kind of flawless Lena Horne or Dorothy Dandridge. If it was white female beauty, then in some way you were disqualified. So here is this genius of a singer um, who not only um, lacks you know, the, the face and form of designated beauties, um, she looks more like a school teacher um, or a librarian, but who um, has- There's nothing wrong with a librarian. No, right? nothing wrong, but it's not female femme glamour. It's that, and that's what I was looking for as a, as a little girl, like so many little girls, especially I think avidly um, as a little black girl who saw fewer um, of those images she could, um, reasonably aspire to. But the thing about Ella Fitzgerald is um, she sweated on TV, which women did not do unless they were playing, you know, maids or something like that. She sweated on TV because, like, just like Louis Armstrong, just like um, great male musicians like Bud Powell, because she was working so hard at her music. She got completely absorbed in what it demanded of her and what it required of her. And she bypassed those, those, those demands of, if you will, gentility. 
And that to me was, was and remains fascinating. Speaking of gentility, you're, of course, brought up in an upper class African-American family, uh, which is the heart certainly of Negro land. And you touch on in this new book. Um, that effortlessness is an aristocratic ethic, isn't it? Whether it's black or white or brown or green. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, the, ah, oh, hello, I just happened to be doing this. And I happened oh, to just hello, I just happened it. to win the Rathbones Folio oh. Prize. <laughs> I, I think that I have more access to, um, you know, ebullient and extreme emotions, but I take exactly what you're talking about. There's a certain... Um, there are certain codes of good manners that, um, you know, one is taught uh, in these, these bourgeois to upper class worlds that all, you know, that very much have to do with uh, effortlessness, as you say, with not making um, possibly risky spec uh, spectacle of yourself, um, with being able, with a certain sang-froid, right? But you know, I also <laughs> I, I worked hard to become my 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 own persona in those ways. Of course, everything you grew up with stays with you. But if as long as it and the and the other ways of being that you were seeking out and modeling, as long as they're in conversation with each other, uh, then then that's how the nervous system doesn't just get fixed and you don't just become this one. Is <laughs> no, one chilly presentational figure it's a wonderful title uh margot the book uh constructing a nervous system uh you write about it you touch on it in the book yes how did you come up with that i mean did it just come to you that term i bet it came to you at the gym did it no it did not actually though since this is a book in which i draw from and draw on and borrow and steal and riff on other writers words i think it's only appropriate that it came from another writer. Um, I liked the idea because um, after my father died, I would sometimes just look through medical encyclopedias and Gray's Anatomy and whatever to kind of comfort myself. So I, I liked this idea um, of this bodily system. But what happened was I was um, at dinner with a friend and I said, I am having such a hard time <laughs> with this book. And she said, yes, I know. Um, it's really hard. And I said, why? Just tell me that. Um, often you need the words of another writer or a wise friend. And she said, because it's like constructing a nervous system. And I thought, good God, that's exactly right. These relations and intricate um, bonds that I am establishing of all kinds with, um, with other writers, let's say with Ella Fitzgerald and Bud Powell, but with my father and my mother um, through them, um, with Willa Cather, the part of me that um, you know does not that 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 finds her a great writer and does not um, take up or take in um, her social, political, um, racial biases. That part is dialoguing with the part of me that realizes, well, sorry, no way to avoid them. You've got to take them on, take them up, and then see what results um, that is that is a kind of new nervous system towards towards a writer or an artist uh, you, you you wrote uh at one point that um you don't have any kids you recognize that time was fleeting um and, and everyone in my immediate family was dying <laughs> right and that you needed to write all this down uh, do you i know this is a bit of a 
vulgar, dumb thing to say. I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times before. But do you think of these books, uh, Negro Land and Constructing a Nervous System, as children? Wait, I'm. Oh, uh, no, I don't. They're my books. <laughs> do do they matter as much to me as I have seen um, children matter to? my sister, for example, um, to other friends. Um, I hope so, because I'm, you know, my writing, whether it's a book or articles, I'm giving huge parts of my energy and life to, but no, I don't think of them. Um, I don't think of them as children. I, that's not, maybe if I had children, I would, but I'm sure there are plenty of people who have writers who have children who don't. I just don't. It's that, you know, that's that you, you tend to pick analogies, met metaphors, similes that are very um, grounded in some way in your actual life or your imaginative life. And in that way, um, you know, children don't, um, th that as an analogy or an image doesn't, doesn't set me off. In terms of analogies and images, the New York Times review uh, compared you to a cabinet maker. So maybe <laughs> not as a mother, but as a crosswoman. <laughs> I like, I, I actually like that. Um, yeah, I thought it was very good. And I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll even quote it. Uh, you'd be the type to draw and redraw plans for a cabinet, build and tinker with the cabinet, stand back and look at the cabinet from every angle, probe the purpose of woodworking, take a break to go to examine 2,000 other cabinets. Are you in another life, Margot? Maybe a, a cabinet maker? Maybe a cabinet maker. Maybe um, a quilt maker. Maybe. I love the idea. Yeah, my wife does quilts. Oh, really? Yeah. Good, good for her. I don't actually have those particular skills, but um, maybe a potter. But I love the idea. And I love the, the, the intricacy of the cabinet. But I love the idea of being um, a kind of wonderful crafts woman in, in some other life yeah i mean that's certainly a, a sort of an aristotelian element there in terms of using one's hands um and the meaning meaning of that you you're, you you gave a beautiful speech i think it was last month in london at the uh, the british library to talk to to uh, accept your award um you talked about feeling lucky to be a non-fiction writer uh, you say it's a bland term, but it holds words as we learn more about what we write. It's past, present, future. So many here's to explore and so many elsewhere's. Is that what creative nonfiction is about? Somehow writing outside time or beyond time or before time? Or creating, acknowledging um, the time <laughs> no, that you're, that your world, maybe you're a science writer, maybe you're an arts writer, um, you know, you have to take in um, the time of, of the work, of the discipline, of, of the world, of the world, but you are also bringing your own sense of intellectual and emotional and speculative uh, time to it. And you're inviting leading, luring, um, uh, dragging the reader uh, to go along with you and to bring their own, to be willing to bring their own senses of time, place, culture, how this material is, is reaching them, is helping, helping construct their nervous system. When I was reading the book, Margot, I was, I, I was wanting to be told by you mm -hmm something undeniable 
but there is an element of perhaps Agent Margot about the book. You're never willing to do that. Perhaps the closest you come, you mentioned Bud Powell. You talk about him, you write about him and uh, Ike Turner and his very problematic relationship with, with his wife, Tina. Um, there aren't that many, apart from your father, there aren't that many illustrious men in the book. There are a lot of illustrious women. That's true of, of both books, um, though there are in, in that section when I talk about wanting to have, as a, especially as a young woman, those access to those genius styles of so many black male singers and performers. That's a total homage to them. But it both books, particularly Negroland, but this two are more grounded in um my my experiences, my imagine, imagined, imaginary, and real lives with um, with women. That's absolutely right. Talk a little bit about why you wrote quite a lot about Ike and Tina Turner in the book as well. Why you chose? Because you could have written about so much, and it's a very slim volume. You clearly yeah. you clearly gave it a huge amount of thought and architecture. You built the perfect cabinet, Margot. Why did you choose to write about Ike and Tina Turner? They're not necessarily the kind of characters one would expect to show up in this kind of book. Um, I dare say that's true. Um, Ike is probably for readers, I think, um, more surprising and in that way more problematic. But one of the things I was after in this book was, um, and that had a lot to do with, with the part of me that's a critic and with the parts of yourself as a critic that you do not necessarily examine or reveal or display first. Um, that is extreme ambivalence, um, conflict, the, those pulls between um, an, an entertainment or an art or an entertainer or artist, those pulls um, between what, what you feel very good about admiring, which might be um, Ike Turner's you know, role as a kind of rhythm and blues and rock and roll pioneer and the things that you genuinely find abhorrent and repulsive, um, which, as a feminist, but I think as a, as a, I don't think you have to be a feminist to find a lot of his behavior towards Tina Turner abhorrent. And the self-destruction also, the kind of ruination of his own life. Um, that was very interesting to me, not so different in certain ways from what I did in approaching um, Willa Cather. Uh, it's just that I, yeah, in both cases, I began with a kind of oh, um, almost worshipfulness um, as a young woman and then um, had to find my, my way elsewhere. Tina Turner, I've always loved. I was a rock and roll kid. Um, I also had reviewed her memoir when it came out. Um, and of course, it was rather hard on, on Ike, justly so. But I was also interested in, and I think you see that through the book, in going back to characters and experiences, emotions, um, you know, convictions that had been changing, that somehow I had to not excise, but revise. Um, and I think all of the book um, has that kind of motion. Oh, what about, the, oh, well, wait a minute. I used to think that, okay, let me, I'm not satisfied with feeling that. Let me try to find my way. I've got three ways to end this affair. It ended, but I've got a couple of scenarios um, and so on and so forth. In your speech, you talked about being a United 
self or not wanting to be a united self actually in the book, the sort of the fragmentary nature of, of the work. Do you think you came out of the writing of constructing a nervous system with a more united, unified sense of yourself than when you began? Or perhaps you chose to scatter yourself even more during and after the book? Well, the aftermath, it's, it's a year, basically. Well, two years. I would say it certainly revealed and displayed things that even when you're planning a book, you, you don't quite expect. Um, I found it more in a, in a good way, but nevertheless more, more draining. I was more exhausted um, in, than I had been finishing any other book. So maybe that those journeys in and among various selves and that sense that, um, you know, unity is not necessarily that symmetrical, perfectly proportioned whole that we, we were taught, you know, the kind of ideals of um, proportioned um, art, ancient and, well, ancient more than modern. Um, but that unity can also be how you conduct um, and create these conversations um, between different parts of yourself and keep them aware of each other and ready. Um, to shift or alter themselves somewhat. I'm guessing, uh, extending the cabinet maker metaphor, Margot, that you're not the kind of person who wants to be put in one kind of cabinet or another. You might make them, but you don't want to be put in other people's cabinets. I think that's, I, I know that's true. Do, do you um, think that when I was reading this book, I, and maybe this is just my reading, I got the sense that perhaps sometimes you were choosing not to be in a cabinet. You weren't writing what people wanted or what they would expect. Do you think there's an element of that? Oh, I think that's, that's, that's quite astute and absolutely true. Um, um, after Negroland, a number of people who read it and, and they meant this as a compliment would say to me, well, where is volume two of Negroland? You're, you're gonna start where you ended and you know take us through these parts of your career and your life, right? And I said, hmm. Um, and then I realized that was not what I wanted to do um, at all. And, you know, I didn't immediately do light bulbing. Oh, okay, here's what I want to do. But when I began to think, okay, let's, you don't have to relinquish memoir, but you can work with it and shape it in different ways. You do not have to um, alter or renounce criticism, but, you know, what? How could they, if they queried each other and, and collaborated and even traded roles a little bit, you know, if, if the critical became very intimate and emotional and the memoir became um, somewhat clinical and analytic at times, um, what would happen? Um, and that, you know, that was exciting to me. You're, you're quite right. I wouldn't have started writing books and I wouldn't have even have started with such a um, a brilliant but deeply problematic character as Michael Jackson. If, um, <laughs> you know, if yeah, that I, was your first book. Yeah, so I wouldn't have even started that if I hadn't wanted to push against, challenge, push around, reconfigure, you know, my own stances and and my own writing um, persona and my own, you know, intellectual and emotional ways of going at um, at at this stuff, this 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 material. 
Yeah, Margaret, since you've been so honest, I have to be honest myself. Um, I haven't actually read Negro, Negro Land. Well, uh, I, right. I definitely enjoyed c constructing a nervous system. Do you think that, and I'm guessing that constructing a nervous system is more, more complicated than Negro Land? Yes, it um, is. And I was, it was funny, at the beginning of the book, you know, you write about your mother and your sister. And I guess I was expecting more. So I, I guess I'm having, I'm going to have to read backwards, which is probably the right way of doing I it. I think that's just fine. Um, I'm not, I feel no reproach um, towards you that you have to do it's it It's shameful. Now. It's shameful. No, it's shameful, shameful, shameful. Um, but um, in some, yes, I think this, I think both structurally, formally, in terms of writing um, and how the book was configured, this is more complicated. And, um, you know, in Negro Land, I was conjoining um, memoir, autobiography, and social and cultural history with some individual characters. Here, I think, you know, combining, let, letting go of that kind of chronology and combining the the intimacies and the um, particulars of, of a critical self and a memory um, and analysis um, and emotion. I think it's more complicated. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not putting Negro Land down, but I think you're absolutely right in deducing that. Well, Margaret, let's end where we began with the prize. <laughs> you won the Rathbones Folio Prize. It's going to go on the shelf alongside your Pulitzer, which you won back in 1995 for your mm -hmm. critical uh, work. Um, are you still in the prize business? You're going to get the Nobel? Is there anything left for Margot Jefferson to win? Margot Jefferson is not thinking that way. Margot, now I'm focused on, because, you know, please, um, the combination of, of, van of vanity, if I were thinking that way, and possible disappointment is not an attractive mixture. So, no, what I'm, wor what I'm worried about and excited about is what I'll do next. <laughs>